First Timothy, First Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 11, no, verses 8 through 13. If you are using the new blue pew Bibles, that is on page 992. Our morning's text is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. Thank you for standing in honor of God's word. From 1 Timothy 3, verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own, own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us once more. Father, thank you for your word. As it has now been read, we are asking for you to send your spirit to give us illumination, to give us understanding, and to prepare our hearts to receive whatever it is you, impl- you plan to impress upon them. May we listen, may we learn, may we let your word expose us and shape us that we might be able to live lives that glorify you. We pray all this for your glory and in your son's name. Amen. And I've been told that one of the hardest, most demanding jobs out there is serving tables. It is being a waiter or a waitress. Now, I've never done it myself, but I can totally imagine why. I'm just picturing the hustle and bustle of waiting tables, taking orders, absorbing criticism, receiving complaints, navigating back and forth between multiple tables, seated with demanding, self-absorbed, hard-to-please customers. It must be a, almost an impossible task. Now, I, I realize it's so easy for us to take our waiters and waitresses for granted. And there's so many times that we're so wrapped up in our own conversation, in our own world, that we know there is a waiter there serving our our table, uh, but we just barely even acknowledge his existence. We don't even look him in the eyes. And just think about how many times has it been for you that you've, you've gone to a restaurant, you've been served by the same waiter the entire evening, but by the end of the meal, you're ready for your bill, and you look around, and you're just confused because you have no idea who your waiter is. You don't remember his name. You can't even remember what he looks like. They work so hard to serve us all night, and yet we take them for granted. We overlook them because to us, they're just waiters. But to God, they're far more. To God, waiters are the great ones. In his economy, servers hold a high place of honor. He never takes them for granted. His eyes are always on them. 
Friends, that's really the point of today's message. So the high calling of table waiters within the economy of God. And in case you're not aware, they're also described in the Bible as deacons. Did you realize the first deacons of the early church were literally table waiters? They served food to needy widows in the church. And yet theirs was not a menial task. It was not a mundane job that you could just easily overlook and ignore. No, they provided a valuable, honorable service to the church and to our Lord. And that's really what Paul's trying to get across in today's message. We've been going through the book of 1 Timothy, and we spent the last two weeks talking about church elders, about who they are, what they do uh, within the church, who qualifies to be one, and that's all found in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. And as we move on in the text, Paul is now addressing the church deacons. And similarly, he's helping us understand who gets to be one and, and why should anyone aspire to the task. And that's really the question I'd like to pose to you today. Why should anyone want to be a deacon? From a biblical point of view, I think there are plenty of good, honorable reasons to deacon, to serve. But those reasons may not be all that obvious to us. I understand if many of you have very little interest in serving as a deacon. It seems to you like just a lot of work. A huge time commitment, too big of a responsibility. Now, I don't want to minimize the amount of time and effort is required to faithfully serve and to effectively serve as a church deacon, but I would argue that the honor and blessing of deaconing in the church outweighs any of the difficulties and sacrifices. My goal this morning is to paint for you a big beautiful, biblical vision of what it means to be a deacon and what deaconing looks like within the church. And I hope it inspires many of you to want to serve in that capacity someday. I plan to use a similar format as when I had preached on elders. And so I'm going to be asking four questions in this message. If you want to follow along, look in your bulletin, you'll see an outline. The four questions are this. First, who are the deacons? Second, what do deacons do? Third, who qualifies to be a deacon? And fourth, why serve as a deacon? So those are four questions. Let's get into it. First, let's begin by asking, who are the deacons? I think it will help to answer our question from a general sense first, and then we'll get more specific. So from a general sense, the Bible describes every follower of Christ as a deacon. If you're a Christian, you're to be a deacon. I get this idea from Mark chapter 10. If you want to turn there with, with me into Mark chapter 10, in this section of Mark, two of Jesus' disciples were jostling for, for power and position within his inner circle. And this was under the assumption that Jesus was soon to liberate Israel from the Romans. He was going to establish his kingdom and sit upon his rightful throne as the son of David. And so they were anticipating him arising and ascending into power. And that's why they said to him in verse 37 of Mark 10, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand 
and one at your left in your glory. These disciples wanted positions of power. Now Mark tells us that the other disciples were indignant at their attempt to one-up them. I think they just kind of wish they had thought of it first and asked first. And so Jesus called all the 12 together and said to them in verse 42, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. His point here is that by jostling for power and position, you're acting just like the Romans that you you despise. The rulers of the Gentiles, they lord their authority over other people. They throw their weight around as they exercise authority in such a way as to make you feel small and to make them seem great. But it shall not be so among you, Jesus says. Among his followers, among his disciples, the categories are reversed. They've been looking at things for far too long upside down, and so Jesus has to redefine greatness for them. And he goes on in verses 43 to 44, and he says, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now, according to the world, the great ones in society are waited on hand and foot. The great ones in society are the ones who have an entourage following behind them, doing their every bidding. But Jesus is arguing that true greatness does not belong to the one who has many servants. No, true greatness belongs to the one who gladly serves. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Now, in my ESV Bible, there's a footnote next to that word servant, and it says that the Greek word there is the word diakonos. It's where we get the English word deacon. The literal translation of diakonos is a table waiter. As we said earlier, the first deacons of the early church literally waited on tables for needy widows. So in the economy of God, the great ones, Those destined to receive glory and honor are not the kings and queens, not the rich and famous, not the high and mighty, but the table waiters, the servants, the deacons. So Christian, in this general sense, if you're not a deacon, then I wonder in what sense are you really a follower of Jesus? If you're not a deacon, if you're not following in the way of your master who said that he came not to be served, but to serve, not to be the object of deaconing, but to deacon himself for him to serve others, if serving, if deaconing does not describe you, if it doesn't characterize your life, then you're still operating according to the patterns of this world. You're seeking greatness and significance in all the wrong ways. Jesus, do you see here, has flipped the categories, and he's now calling you to be a deacon. He is calling you to be a servant to all. That's what it means to be a deacon in the general sense. But now in the specific sense, which is how Paul uses it in today's passage in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, we are describing... 
a particular office of leadership in the church. And so this is the specific sense. In the specific sense, the deacons are a select group of qualified men and women in a church who have been appointed to a recognized position of leadership. A group of men and women who have been appointed to a recognized position of leadership in the church. Now that word, diakonos, is used 29 times throughout the Greek New Testament, but only three, maybe four times, is it specifically referring to an office holder of a local church. Two of the occurrences is found in our passage this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, and also there in verse 12. The other clear instance is found in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, where Paul addresses his letter to the Philippians. He addresses it to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, clearly distinguishing a particular office that was found in the church of Philippi. And the fourth instance, though it's debatable, uh, is found in Romans chapter 16, verse 1. And this is where Paul identified a sister named Phoebe as, quote, a servant of the church. Again, that word servant is derived from the word diakonos. So your Bible there in Romans 16, verse 1, might have a footnote on the bottom that says, or it could be Phoebe, a deaconess of the church. And so that's a possible translation. I know it's debatable, and we're going to come to that in a moment in our message. But here we're seeing that there is a general sense in which all Christians are called to be deacons. And let's not take that lightly. We truly are called to deacon if we are called to Christ. But there's also a specific sense in which some Christians within the life of a local church are called to serve in a leadership capacity within a recognized office that we call the office of deacon. Now, before we, get to, uh, before we consider who gets to serve in that position, let's talk about what they do in the life of the church. This is our second question, our second point. What do deacons do? Well, to answer that, turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter, uh, sorry, Acts chapter 6, verse 1. So if you can't turn your Bibles to Acts 6, verse 1, and we're going to consider the circumstances surrounding uh, the early church's establishment of deacons within the church. By the time you get to Acts chapter 6, the early church is already established, it's growing, but we see that it's under attack because the gospel is spreading like wildfire. Revival is breaking out in every town in which the gospel is entering, and so the enemy is really stepping up his attack. And so in chapter 5 of Acts, Satan tries to corrupt the church by hypocrisy from the inside. And we read about the story of Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. And at the same time, he tries to suppress the church by persecution from the outside. And that's what we see in chapter 5, verses 12, all the way to 42. But since those efforts don't seem to be working, the enemy tries in chapter 6 to distract the church 
by sowing division and preoccupying its elders. So Acts chapter 6, verse 1, introduces us to a controversy that's been brewing between two groups within the church. It says the church was growing. Look in verse 1. The church was growing. The disciples were increasing in number. And so that means a lot of good things were happening in the early church. But with growth comes challenges. As the vine grows, the trellis needs to be adjusted to accommodate this growth. Good gardeners, they know this. Good gardeners know that if you don't make the necessary adjustments to the trellis, it eventually is going to stifle the growth and the fruitfulness of the vine. And in the same way, as a church grows, good overseers are going to wisely adjust church structures, which includes its leadership structure, in order to accommodate growth. Otherwise, the outdated structures will eventually become an obstacle to growth, an obstacle to fruitfulness. And so we see what wisdom calls for here is to make adjustments. And in the early church, in the early church, due to all of this exponential growth, there was a strain felt between two particular groups within the church. We're told it's between the Hellenists, that is, the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians, and between the Hebrews, that's the Hebrew-speaking Jewish Christians. Apparently, the widows among the Hellenists were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. So much of the tension that we find here in Acts 6 has to do with cultural differences between these two particular groups. Now, think about them. They shared the same ethnicity, they were both Jewish, and the same faith, they were both Christians, but they spoke two different languages, and culturally, they were worlds apart. And these differences led to tension, and tension led to feelings of resentment. These Greek-speaking Jewish Christians, the Hellenists, were likely newer to the church, and they were likely smaller in size, and so they were feeling like their needs and their concerns were being overlooked and ignored, and that contributed to a growing divide between the two sides. Does this sound familiar to anyone? Anyone who has spent enough time in an immigrant church knows what it feels like to experience cultural and linguistic divides within one body. And those on the English-speaking side know what it feels like to feel like certain needs and concerns go unmet and unaddressed. And we feel like complaining. That's nothing new. We complained in the immigrant church. They complained in the early church. It's the same problem. Look, at, look with me at Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in, those, and now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And just as the problem between two culturally distinct groups in the church is nothing new, neither should be the solution, friends. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. If we experience tensions and dis divisions and distractions as a church, we, we should just turn to the same solution that is found in Acts chapter 6. Let's appoint deacons. Let's turn 
to deacons. Let's choose individuals who are of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. In this particular case, they were asked to wait on tables. Now, we see here in the text three things that deacons are to do within the church. First, first they are to care for the physical needs of the church. To care for physical needs. You see, every church member is responsible to meeting the spiritual needs of their fellow members. So we are all, if, if, if you are a member of this church, we're all responsible to pray for each other, to exhort each other, to encourage each other, to bear each other's burdens. If you're a member of this church, you are responsible for your fellow members' discipleship to Christ, and they are also responsible for yours. But in the life of the church, there are many physical needs where it's simply not practical to expect every member to respond to it, every member to be responsible for it. And so we give particular responsibility to a specific individual or to a small group of people. And so in the Jerusalem church, they appointed seven godly men to the ministry of food distribution for widows. Considering the size of the church, we, it started off already with 3,000 people, and it's growing exponentially. So considering the size of this church, it's likely that those seven guys did not do all the work themselves, but they exercised practical leadership, mobilizing and equipping others to the work of ministry. And we do something very similar in our context here in this church. When it comes to the maintenance of our facility, the management of our finances, the logistical oper operation and organization of all of our various ministries, we appoint deacons to carry out those tasks. Not to do all the work themselves, but to facilitate others in meeting the physical, practical needs of the church. But behind that task of meeting needs, deacons are really aiming at an even higher end. This is the second thing they're supposed to do. Deacons work for the unity of the church. They work for the unity of the church. Just think about those seven in Acts 6. Yes, they were tasked with a very practical job of, of meeting very physical needs, but remember what was behind the problem in the first place. The mismanagement and neglect of physical needs was sowing spiritual disunity and division within the church body. And it was a serious enough threat to their unity and to their gospel witness. And so beyond just meeting physical needs, what these deacons were trying to do is, is to head off and to prevent any fracturing of the church's unity in Christ. And so we're going to take, uh, uh, in a minute, we're going to be talking about what it looks like like uh, what you should be looking for when choosing deacons. But let me, just, let me just make a note here that the kind of person you're looking for should be a glue guy, right? N not someone who's, who's polarizing, not someone who's turfy, you know, mainly concerned just for the needs of his or her group or, or fellowship. Y you don't want a lobbyist among the other deacons. You want a glue guy. 
someone who, who holds a group together, who, who reaches across lines and draws people together, especially in a multicultural church like ours, you want deacons who understand and appreciate the differences between our cultures and who recognize the strengths and the weaknesses of each culture and who work hard to bridge divides and to maintain the unity of the church. That's who you're looking for. And so deacons, they care for the physical needs of the church, they work for the unity of the church, and third, they support the ministry of the word. They support the ministry of the word. That means they support the work of the church's overseers, or we call them elders, or we call them pastors. As we've already covered, the primary responsibility within the church to guard and to teach sound doctrine falls upon the church elders. That is an extremely important task, and it requires much time and attention. And so to safeguard the time and attention needed for the ministry of the word, deacons were developed. Look at verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, friends, please don't misinterpret that as suggesting the ministry of the word is more important than deaconing. It's not saying that pastoral work is superior to diaconal work. This is not an issue of whose ministry is more important. This is just an issue of calling, being faithful to the ministry calling that God has apportioned to each. And so the apostles and eventually the elders who followed them, are called to ministry that is primarily word-based. But the ministry of deacons is primarily works-based. Word-based versus work-based. So deacons are not called to teach or exercise authority. Elders are specifically called to do that. Deacons are to support the elders by doing the important task of meeting needs and maintaining unity, which then allows elders to be freed up to focus on the task of overseeing and pastoring the church. And so one application here is that you definitely don't want to choose a deacon who doesn't appreciate the importance of or the centrality of the preaching and teaching ministry of the church. The church only grows and is only fruitful by the ministry of the word. So anyone who diminishes the importance of word-based ministries in order to focus more on work-based ministries, that person probably wouldn't have been chosen in Acts chapter 6. I mean, those seven deacons, they were anxious to protect the ministry of the word in prayer. They were zealous to see their elders freed up and undistracted in order that they can better do their job. That's the heart of a good deacon. That's what a good deacon does. Now, let's, let's shift gears a little and focus uh, more in depth on our particular passage that was read earlier. So go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and let's ask our third question. Who qualifies to serve in this capacity? Who qualifies to be a deacon? And let me start by 
uh, diving into the sticky question of whether or not women can serve as deacons. Are there, is there such thing as deaconesses? Now, I recognize that between complementarians, that is, between those who believe Scripture assigns primary leadership in the home and in the church to men, that between complementarians, there is disagreement on how to interpret verse 11 in our text. Is it referring to the wives of deacons or directly to deaconesses? Now, I see strengths in both arguments. Now, I've landed on the side of supporting deaconesses, and that has been the historical practice of our church. And so let me offer you just four brief reasons why that's so, why we um, support deaconesses. First off, the ESV, if you're using the ESV, it says their wives. And so its primary translation in verse 11 is to see it as referring to the wives of deacons, but the possessive pronoun there is actually not in the Greek. It's an added gloss. And that's why there is a footnote letting you know that there is an alternative translation here. It could be translated simply as, women, likewise, must be dignified. It's the same Greek word, and it could be translated as women or wives. It all depends on the context. So, women could be a legitimate translation as opposed to specifically wives. Now, secondly... Second reason is the use of that word likewise appears to introduce for us a new group of people in the same way that deacons were introduced to us in verse 8 as distinct from the group of elders. And so that would mean in verse 11 that Paul is addressing a new group of leaders that we know as deaconesses. Now granted, he does seem to double back in verse 12, and now he addresses deacons once again, and so admittedly it's disjointed. But that in itself does not rule out the possibility that Paul is speaking here in verse 11 to deaconesses. Third, third reason is we can point back to Phoebe, as I mentioned her earlier, in Romans chapter 16, verse 1. Paul calls her there a servant of the church, a deacon of the church. And since it's the masculine form of diakonos being used there, it, uh, and it's being used to refer to a, woman in, uh, to a woman, that would suggest that by that time, the term had become so standardized when referring to this specific office of the church, and there just happens to be a sister, in that case, serving in that office. So that's another reason to think that... Um, there can be deaconesses. And the fourth, and I think the most compelling reason, is that Scripture doesn't assign to deacons any duties that in themselves would contradict what Paul taught earlier in chapter 2, verse 12, about not permitting a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. So since deacons are not called to lead the church but to serve the church, I think verse 11 likely refers to women who serve as deaconesses. But you know, friends, regardless of which one it actually is, whether it's referring to wives of deacons or the sisters themselves, we can confidently say that verse 12 is saying that these women are to be of high character. It says that they must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, based on these verses, 
there are three general ways to describe those who qualify to be deacons or deaconesses. First, they are those who exhibit self-mastery. They exhibit self-mastery. Just look back at verse 8 with me. It says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. So in other words, friends, those whom you appoint as deacons must demonstrate self-mastery in their behavior, in their speech, and in their use of alcohol and money. Anyone characterized by recklessness, by insincerity, by compulsive behavior, or by self-indulgent greed, such individuals are not qualified to deacon. Deacons must be men and women who are of high character and worthy of our respect. Second, second, deacons are those who have sound doctrine. They have sound doctrine. Even though they're, they're not required to be able to teach like the elders are, many of them are gifted, especially in our church. Many of our deacons are able to teach, and they do so within our church, but Regardless of whether or not they teach, all deacons must have sound theology. Look at verse 9 with me. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, the mystery of the faith there is not referring to some kind of cryptic secret. It's just referring to sound doctrine, the sound doctrines of the faith that have been revealed to us now in the scriptures. And so deacons need to have good theology. Let's just do away with this notion that deacons are merely practical leaders. Now they're still spiritual leaders who, know, who need to know what they believe, to know what the church believes, and then to hold those beliefs without reservation, with a clear conscience. And that's why we don't, we don't choose deacons just based on their professional skills. Oh, yeah, he's really good with numbers. Oh, he, he has a lot of experience serving on boards, and so he'd be really good as a deacon. Or, 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 or just chosen based on their social skills. Oh, she, she just knows a whole lot of people. She would be great to represent her congregation or, or her fellowship group. No, deacons, they need to be spiritual leaders of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, and those who have sound theology, sound doctrine. The third general qualification is that deacons are those who have been tested and approved. Look at verse 10. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. And so in other words, don't be quick to lay hands on someone and to elevate them into the, this position of leadership without testing them first. And that's why it's not wise to hand new converts or new members this kind of responsibility or, or, or even to, to have them serve not just as a deacon or e even as a small group leader or, or a fellowship leader. You want to be patient. You want to be wise because the congregation needs time to know this person better, to assess the soundness of that person's life and doctrine. So don't be hasty here. And you know, the best place to look, the best place to look to determine if the prospective deacon is faithful and is blameless is to look at their home life. That's what it says in verse 12. 
how well an individual serves his wife or her husband or their children is going to indicate for you how well they're going to serve the church. Verse 12 says, Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. Church, we have a great opportunity to apply this text immediately. Because we're beginning our annual process of identifying individuals to serve as church deacons for the coming year. And I'm excited that our council has just recently approved a few new English-specific positions which will provide greater leadership to the various ministries on the English side. And at the same time, it's going to give opportunity for more of you to step into this honorable task. And so in a few weeks, all church members will have a chance to suggest names to the nomination committee for, for consideration. Form is going to be available to you soon. And now that you're equipped with this passage, now that you have a better understanding of what we are to be looking for, I encourage you to take time to prayerfully consider who among us might fit these qualifications and who might thrive serving in the office of deacon. This is providential timing for God to give us this text as we're entering into this season of our church. And this is a way for all of us to participate. Now let's conclude with this question, this final question of why serve as a deacon? Because perhaps this morning for the first time, you're opening up to the idea. You're opening up the possibility of, hey, maybe, maybe I, I should try to serve as a deacon. That's great. Or maybe, maybe you're going to be nominated in the months to come. And so you really need to answer this question, why should you serve? And Paul gives us the answer in verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And so, friends, one reason that you should be open to being a deacon is because if you serve well, you gain a good standing. You hold a place of high honor in the church. And if you feel like that seems wrong, if that sounds self-serving to you, it's because you're still too accustomed to the ways of the world. Just think back to Mark chapter 10. Did you notice there that Jesus never actually condemned his disciples for wanting to be great and wanting to do something great for the kingdom? But he did make the point that greatness is only achieved by servanthood, by deaconing. You see, there is a difference between seeking honor and seeking to honor yourself, between seeking glory and seeking to glorify yourself. Trying to glorify yourself, that's wrong. That's the way of the world. But if you seek glory through obedience to God's word and through faithfulness in serving his church, that is commendable. That is the way of the cross. That is the way that Jesus took. My friends, Jesus is the ultimate deacon. He gladly identified himself as a diakonos in Mark 10, verse 45. He said he came not to be served, but to serve, to deacon. 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. So why should you serve as a deacon? Not because you're trying to honor or glorify yourself, not even because it's just the good and right thing to do. No, the primary reason you should serve as a deacon is because in so doing, you are imitating Christ. You are adopting his servant-like posture. You are conforming to the pattern that he has already set for us. But remember, friends, the gospel says that Jesus came not just to set a pattern of humble service, but he came to serve. He came to serve us by laying down his own life as a ransom for us. You see, in all other religions, the primary message to followers is, serve God and you'll be saved. Serve God and he will serve you. Offer these sacrifices, give him this amount of time, this amount of service, this amount of devotion, and you'll be in his good favor. He'll save you. But that is not Christianity. The Christian gospel says you need to stop trying to serve Jesus, to stop trying to work for him, and to admit first that you need him to serve you, to ransom your life, to reconcile you to God. And Paul is saying here in verse 13 that one of the surest ways to know that you've been served by Jesus, that you've been saved by Jesus, that you're a Christian, how do you know? If you're living a life dedicated to deaconing in the name of Jesus, that is how you gain great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And so that's why I think Every single believer should make this a goal to strive to be a deacon, even in this specific sense, or at least to be the kind of person who would be qualified to serve as a deacon. Strive for this, for those who serve well gain a good standing in Christ Jesus. Father, use this text to help us to see the way you have ordered this world and you have ordered the church, that we might put aside worldly notions, worldly thinking, and that we might see things and pursue things the way you have designed, that we might seek greatness, seek glory, seek honor, but through obedience, through faithfulness, through service, through deaconing. May we imitate your son, Jesus, to be like him. And we know that's only possible because he first came to deacon us, to serve us through the cross. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.